Welcome to Set Impact, where we discuss how emerging technology is changing sectors, society, and the world at large. In today's episode, we speak to Hussein Kanji, a venture capitalist who runs Hoxham Ventures here in London. He's invested and sat on the boards of some amazing startups such as Dark Trace, Babylon Health, Deliveroo, and many, many more. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing Matt Clifford's article on bad behavior exhibited by venture capitalists. What's, what founders should actually be doing in these chaotic times? and new sectors that will actually appear strong from this pandemic and much, much more. Now, before we go into the episode, today's sponsor is The Open Journal, a London video marketing agency that have assisted many venture-backed startups in London. If you want fair-priced, world-class video assets to assist you in your marketing sales efforts, recruitment videos, or if you just want to capture a company event, um, reach out to The Open Journal and speak to Priyash, who's the founder. Uh, to explore how video can assist you in meeting your company's objectives. Uh, I think he, he did an amazing job with our video version of our podcast. He's worked with a few of our previous guests, including Raina and Georgina from Vine Health, and assisted in their product launch and did a fantastic job. So reach out to Priyash on www.theopenjournal.co.uk. Thank you so much for being on our show. Um, and I mean, would you be able to kind of tell us a little bit more about your story? I mean, I saw further back on your LinkedIn profile, you worked at Sun Microsystems. I mean, were you there when Vinod Kosler was there? No, no, no. Vinod, <laughs> Vinod founded the firm. At that point, he was a very successful venture capitalist. Uh, already, he moved to Kleiner. Uh, I joined Sun in kind of its peak days when, when the company was really prominent. I mean, so I'd grown up from this little company to something much bigger. Yeah. And, and in the late 90s, it was doing, it, I mean, it was doing amazingly well. Mm. Um, uh, it was it was kind of the server infrastructure. It was like the AWS equivalent. Uh, I mean, it wasn't yeah. like the cloud-based thing, but it was like the physical on-prem stuff that you, everyone bought. So mm. as the dot-com bubble took off, one thing that everybody did was uh, was buy server uh, buy server farms, and mm -hmm. they're all usually Sun Sun systems. So it's good to be a picks and shovels company in a in a in a bubble. Um, mm -hmm. So I was there. I was on the software team, uh, which uh, was not as big of a deal as the hardware team. So it was mm -hmm. a bit of a fish out of water type story. Uh, most yeah. of my team ended up ended up leaving, but I worked with and there was a guy on my team uh, who had built one of the original like one of the original Mac OS people. Uh, another guy. I mean, it was like a, it was like a handful of distinguished engineers and this like 20 year old kid, which was me. So it was, yeah. it was an interesting place to be. Mm. I mean, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about your story and kind of what led you to being here right now? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm an American, um, uh, grew up on the East coast, uh, then transplanted myself to the West coast, uh, kind of accidentally. I went to college on the West coast. I went to Stanford, uh, and then got stuck in the tech industry and stayed out there for about, you know, 10 plus years, uh, moved up to Seattle, um, because, uh, I, I joined Microsoft. Uh, and so Microsoft was based in Redmond. So I, I moved up, uh, Seattle's really rainy, uh, very gray, actually rainier than London, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and I, as much as I liked the company and the job, I didn't really like the weather and the, and the location. <laughs> uh, so decided that I wanted to get back to a city. Uh, and because I could tolerate the, the rain in, uh, on the, in, in Seattle, I, I thought London would be a nice place to be for a couple of years. I, I, I moved across to, to London. I found a reason to be here, which is to go to business school. Uh, oh, okay. it, it was It was largely motivated by the fact that I kind of wanted to be in a city again in, in, in London. So I moved to here. And then uh, around around orientation time, uh, in the, you know that first year when you when you relocate mm -hmm. here, 
uh, I got put in touch with a venture firm uh, here in, in that was an American firm that had opened up in London, and then that, that was I spent Excel, some time right? Was it that Excel? was Excel? Yeah, yeah. So I spent some I spent some time with them. They kind of created a job for me while I was in business school, which is great. Uh, I kind of learned the business. I started, you know, observing on boards, et cetera. So it was kind of a full, it's an apprenticeship. Our, our industry is like an apprenticeship model. So, you know, yeah. you're an apprentice. Um, then as soon as I finished school, which happened two years later, I joined the firm full time. Uh, and then it became pretty clear uh, after a few years that that, that I wasn't going to stay there forever. Um, the partnership dynamic kind of changed a little bit. So it was, it was tough mm. as a younger guy, I think, to succeed. Mm. So I left. Uh, realized I was very deeply unemployable uh, for this for two reasons. Um, if I went back to the U.S. and and I wanted to stay in ventures, so at that point I had shifted my career over from the building mm. of stuff to the to the investing into the people who build the mm. stuff. Um, and so in the U.S., I think everyone had the same reaction, which is you used to be a smart guy, and then you moved across to London. So we're not so sure about you anymore. Uh, remember, this is a time where L London and the UK and you know broadly Europe didn't really mm. produce all that much in value yeah. in the tech industry. So, so people had a right to be skeptical. Yeah. And and the the consistent kind of message I got from people, from people who were like interested in like kind of giving me a home, was come back home spend a year show us that you're one of us again and then we'll talk about a career uh and then i talked to a bunch of the uk firms uh or the european firms and there was no interest whatsoever in hiring like a young flunk out from from axel which is kind of counterintuitive right if you're at one of the yeah. best shops in the world you yeah. would think it would be easy to get a job at the you know at the next best uh but a lot of those firms are also going through a lot of change at that point uh, a lot of them had raised money in the dot-com bubble it had been 10 mm -hmm. years they hadn't made any money they were restructuring they were shutting down yeah. there was a firm called eden that was kind of the uh, one of the flagship kind of uh, mm. um, uh, seed stage firms and they don't even exist today mm. uh, there's another one called ponds same thing so uh <clears throat> so kind of out of sheer necessity uh i, I created a firm uh simply so i could stay employed uh <laughs> it took a and that was it. There were no jobs. And, and I was pretty convinced that Europe would produce interesting companies. Um, so, what gave I mean, you that, that insight, given the fact that there was no data? Uh, there actually was data. So, uh, so that, okay. yeah, yeah. So I was, in, I was an early investor. At, I mean, at Excel, so Excel gets the credit, not me. But uh, we were an early investor in a social gaming company called Playfish. It was kind of like a Zynga or a King. King okay. was even earlier than us, but King was at that point focused on a different business. They weren't in the social mm -hmm. gaming, like the Facebook gaming space. And, and that particular company did incredibly well. So it went from like zero to like 40 million users at one percent at one point. And this was all within 18 months. They got wow. sold 24 months into life of the company yeah. to Electronic Arts for for 400 million dollars. So it was a you know pretty good acquisition. And it was it, Electronic Arts EI didn't didn't spend very much time on social gaming, like like a lot mm -hmm. of big companies do with new things happen but this particular company playfish got 10 percent of the italian population in like a matter of like a month maybe even less maybe a few weeks uh and that wasn't because they were doing anything in italy it was facebook went into italy facebook grew exponentially kind of like the coronavirus does now, all these people started signing up for for facebook and when they showed up on facebook yeah. they wanted to do something and we were one of the few games that were you know that were on the platform so they started playing our game and so I was convinced that in a world that looked like that, where you had Facebook and you had the app store, mm. you could produce companies in Europe and get to global audiences 
without without that much effort mm. and historically if you're anywhere in europe and europe is like a concept to me it's not like a real place because these countries are all so fundamentally different mm. it's not like all of a sudden because you start in france you immediately get germany and spain and italy for free right it, it yeah. doesn't work that way it's not it's not homogenous the way the u.s is the u.s has states but the states are largely similar mm. um, europe doesn't feel at all similar to each other and so so it's a, to me, it's a more of a theoretical concept and this kind of stuff. And it's really hard to scale. And it also takes a ton of money to be able to roll out across multiple countries. So, and, and the UK and Europe have historically not had tons of money in, in the venture community. So it's, it's like super hard to build a really big business out of Europe. And, and then when you have these distribution mechanisms where you can do it for basically free or very low cost, all of a sudden you level the playing field. You actually can compete. Mm. And so I was convinced and, but you know, when we were setting up our fund presentation to try and convince investors of what we saw, you know, we, we had, you, you come up with logos, right. To illustrate your point. And the only logo, the only logo that we could come up with was Skype. <laughs> the only recognizable logo is Skype. And so like yeah. you're going in and you're talking to people and you're saying, look, like I am convinced this is going to happen. Here's the reasons why you can articulate it reasonably well, mm. but then people are like, show me the proof and like your one proof is like yesterday's company right and even mm -hmm. skype back then was like not the most modern company in in the world it was kind of like a, at that point like a decade old mm -hmm. um and that's it that's all you had so so it was it was a tough fundraise to convince people i think eventually i would say we got a bunch of people in the u.s to give us money and they basically took pity on us right there were people that we used to work with and yeah. they thought this was like the dumbest idea in the world and they yeah. were going to lose their money but they would write us a check because we were good people and then kind of assume that we were going to do a pretty irresponsible job of managing it <laughs> but you know it, they weren't going to write us so big a check that it would be that much yeah. of a big deal for them in terms of their net worth but mm. i don't think they really expected all that much in the in the way of returns and then we had a family office here in uh, in London that gave us a little bit of money and, and the combination kind of worked well. We were able to get to closing and then, you know, then we did, then we did our jobs and, and yeah. you know, being in the right place at the right time is a good thing. We were in the right place at the right time. So mm. we did 17 investments out of that first fund. We, uh, out of the 17, three of them are unicorns. So that's a way higher hit ratio than most yeah. people. Um, yeah. Seed Camp, I think, has three unicorns and it's fun and it's been around for like three times longer than we have and done, yeah. done like 160 investments or something like that. So, you know, by, mm -hmm. by comparison, we, we do okay. Um, and we're managing our second fund and, you know, that, that that's kind of us in a nutshell. Yeah. And, and weir weirdly enough, we're like in, this is not by design. There's th and there are only three of us. We're, we're tiny as a firm. For a long time, there were only two of us. We added our third person uh, about six months ago mm. um, no, to be our COO. And we're all Americans, uh, weirdly <laughs> enough, all from all from the East Coast, but who spent enough formative time on the West Coast. Yeah. I mean, what areas do you think are really ripe for disruption right now? I, I know that you're a board member at Dark Trace. I think there's a huge amount of stuff between software and, and, and biotech. So what is normally kind of wet lab type stuff is becoming increasingly simulated in software in one form or another. And there's a fusion in between. And 
it's hard to figure out what the fusion is, but I do think there's going to be value created in there. And I think both of those industries are booming. I mean, the amount of stuff that you can compute, the amount of stuff that you can throw, mm -hmm. so, you know, software at the problem is just growing exponentially. And I do think there's a the time and place for the, for a lot of that stuff is is coming sooner. Mm -hmm. I don't know that definitively. Like uh, we'll see if that thesis kind of plays out over the next ten years. But we made a bunch of investments around a lot of stuff that that combines software and 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 kind of we call it bio, you know, bio IT. Um, mm -hmm. that, uh, um, it's not really quite biotech because mm -hmm. biotech is still very hardware oriented. And then there's tons of value still to be created in new marketplaces, new enterprise software type products. Mm -hmm. You know, but the hard part is like, we don't know, like, you know, but you know, we had a, to rewinding. So we were convinced 10 years ago or six years ago when, you know, when we started the firm that if you just thought about cybersecurity as like an area, the, the nature of that market is that, the bad guys will use the latest, greatest technology to hurt the good guys. I mean, mm. They'll go find the latest techniques because the old techniques won't work. So the incentive structure is for the bad guys to be the technology visionaries because mm. they need the technology in order to open the doors, right? So the criminals are the ones who are using the latest, greatest techniques to, to, to rob the good guys. Yeah. And eventually that gap between the good and the bad gets wider and wider because the, the bad guys keep using new stuff and the new stuff gets, you know, it grows in terms of its, its exponential growth on its own way. So that the infrastructure that the good guys have kind of put in doesn't keep up with what the bad guys currently have. And mm -hmm. so there's a new generation of infrastructure that needs to come in that kind of can compete with the bad guys and kind of defend the good guys for a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. that's, that's all we knew. Yeah. Right? We couldn't tell you what that new level of infrastructure was going to be. Yeah. All we could tell you is, that's kind of the rules of the game that kind of makes a lot of intellectual sense the way I've kind of sketched it out. Mm. And there are going to be some really interesting companies that build the next generation of infrastructure because you could see the gap widening between the good yeah. and the bad. And mm. so it was a matter of time. We had no idea that Dark Trace existed. We had no idea what Dark Trace did. Mm. We didn't even know when they came to us whether this made sense or didn't make sense. You know, there was an existing market that Dark Trace was playing in called SIEM, Security Information Enterprise Management. When you read the research reports on it, SIEM was like a 300 million a year business and it was kind of a crappy business. Nobody really wanted to be in it. It was too yeah. small, uh, not that interesting. And, and when everyone looked at Darktrace, they all said, oh, Darktrace is yet another SIEM vendor. Well, the big difference with SIEM is what Darktrace is, is like a really fancy alarm system for the corporate network. When it sees weird stuff happening over the network, it kind of rings the alarm bell and it does it without any programming. It just looks at the traffic, self-trains, figures it out, raises its hand when it sees something suspicious. And so it's not the fix against the bad guys, but it's like the early warning system against the bad guys. That's okay. the best way to think about it. And SIEM is the same exact kind of technology, except you write down everything that you're looking for. So imagine a system that detects automatically and another thing where you write down step by step by step, you know, all the things that are vulnerable, like all the things that are potential, like red alerts, like you write the rule set yourself, right? It's like mm -hmm. programming an alarm system where you have to write every single rule. And you can imagine in a world where the bad guys get cleverer and cleverer mm -hmm. that the rules that you've written down from last, you know, yesterday don't apply today because the bad guys have rabbited around that rule. And so you need something that's a little bit more automated. So we were, mm. we were kind of convinced that this was interesting. Then the next question for us, and this is a very normal way for us to do the business, mm. right? The next question is, okay, is that, are, are we correct? So who do we know in the industry that's really smart, that's really plugged in, that can kind of help us 
figure out if we're kind of nutty for thinking that this is super interesting or, you know, or maybe there's like 10 other things like this, or maybe this is already in the engineering roadmap of like a Cisco and there's no point in building something like this. Yeah. So one of my friends was a chief scientist of Cisco, of Cisco's security team, SourceFire. So I picked mm-hmm. up the phone and called them up. And I've known him for a long time, so it's really easy to have this conversation. And we got a little bit more information. And we called the CTO at RSA, which is a big security company. We got a little bit more information. So kind of through our network, we figured out, hey, this is actually kind of compelling. And we're on to question number two. This is, thesis makes sense. This company is doing something really interesting. The rest of the market kind of doesn't understand it yet. Third question is like, has Andreessen funded someone like this that we write the check and then all of a sudden our company is going to get blown out of the water by the company in the U.S. that's raised like $50 million, has all the the good and the great behind it, right? And so then you, so we spend a lot of time going back and forth between California and the U.K., not because we're doing anything in California from an investing perspective, it's just that's where the knowledge sits. So we go there to tap the knowledge and the, the knowledge, you know, the California community is really good about sharing information as long as you're one of the trusted insiders. Mm-hmm. If you're like an outsider, they don't really share all that much. But if you've been with, you know, if you've worked with them for 10, 15 years, it's a huge advantage in Europe to mm-hmm. be able to, to be able to refer back to them and kind of get the scoop. So it turns out the next best company in this space, at least in my opinion, it got acquired about a year and a half after, after we invested in dark trace for $320 million. Mm-hmm. It would have probably given us the best run for our money. It turns mm-hmm. out the angel, investor and there's like an old friend of mine so we have this like awkward we have this awkward coffee meeting right where he wants to know what my company because i'm not disclosing the name of the company he's not disclosing the name of his company right we both kind of know we have a company that's kind of looking at the same problem kind of same type of company he wants to learn as much as possible about what i'm doing and what our company is doing i want to learn as much as possible about what his company is doing and so you have this like awkward exchange where you're you're giving a little bit because you're really curious because you want to unlock yeah. what he has, but mm. at the same time you don't want to give so much. But you know you can do this with a friend, right? It's yeah. really hard to do this with a stranger because yeah. there's just no trust. Uh, mm. So here you can do it. And then his particular company, I mean, they released a product the day after the day of the release of the product, they sold the company for three hundred twenty million bucks. Home run investment from his perspective. Yeah. But that left us very free and clear to be the multi-billion dollar company. Mm. Um, is the, the next best one, at least I think. Not, not everyone agreed with me that was the next best one, but I thought that was number two on the list. That was mm. the one I was the most worried about. It was kind of then taken off the table. And, yeah. and like most of these things, like once the acquirer does it, they, they don't know what to do with it. So they, they kind of <laughs> let it sit, which is kind of a shame. They should have actually mm. done something with it. Could have built this thing up into a big company. It was very complimentary mm. to the person who bought it. Um, so so that's, that's kind of our job in a nutshell. So it's less about figuring out what the mm-hmm. next big thing is, having this rough sketch of where areas are that are interesting, and then really being able to calibrate and figure out if what you're seeing is, is if A, that, that interesting is actually really interesting, and if what you're seeing is number one in that, in, that, in that sector. Because there's no point in investing in number five, number 10. Now, you, may, you may get it wrong, you may end up investing in number two, that's probably mm-hmm. okay. But it's, you don't get venture returns by, by being the me too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the main reasons I wanted to get you on to um, uh, our show was to kind of discuss the venture landscape in in this pandemic. Um, I'm assuming you've probably read uh, Matt Clifford's article about VCs pulling uh, their term sheets. And there's a wide variety of different opinions um, in the ecosystem right now. Could you clear some things up for us and provide us with a little bit more clarity from a venture capital perspective? 
Yeah. So, so again, bear, bear, so there are a few, there are a few macro things. So mm-hmm. bear in mind that most venture folks are kind of lemmings. So mm-hmm. the independent thought process in the venture community is very, is very muted. There's a lot of FOMO type behavior. It, it's in many ways, it's kind of like the music business and the movie business, right? Someone releases a zombie movie, three other studios release a zombie movie yeah. at the same time. Like, why does that happen? Right. It's because they've heard through the grapevine that zombie movies are going to be hot this summer. They, you know, and they, they do like, me too. So there's a lot of this herd mentality type stuff. And so it aggravates in times of crisis, right? You hear Sequoia is not going to do any more deals right now. It's not true. So that was an arbitrary hypothetical example, right? Mm. But so, so and so famous fund is pulling back. We should be pulling back too, right? So the, that independent thought register where like, I should really figure this out for myself mm. doesn't really happen as much as it really should in the venture industry. So that drives a lot of this behavior. And the second thing, and this is a real thing, is the venture community gets its money largely from endowments. The endowments invest in all kinds of investments or endowments, pension funds, et cetera. Mm. They invest in all kinds of stuff. When the overall stock market comes down, the the amount that they've invested in venture looks disproportionately high compared mm-hmm. to the past, right? If everything else comes down and then you're invested in this small percentage, that small percentage of a liquids becomes a much bigger percentage of your overall portfolio value mm-hmm. uh, because it doesn't move as fast. It doesn't correct down 20%. And so proportionally it doesn't come down near as much. So that sometimes there's pressure on that side to say, Hey, we're now over-invested in venture. We're not going to invest that much in venture, which means if you're running a fund Mm. and you're investing super fast and you need to go back out to go get your next fund, the getting the next fund may not be, it may be much more challenging in in the context of that. So if you're a fund manager, you you then want to stretch out your fund to be as long as possible to kind of weather the storm. This happened in the dot-com bubble. This happened in the financial crisis. And so you, your, your capital becomes a lot more precious. And so you don't want to spend it too aggressively because you may not be able to top it up again. So those, those two things, I think you have to bear them in mind because they're like kind of the backdrop to, to what's going on. And it inform, both of those inform what people do. We've heard of a lot of this pull term sheets. Matt wrote about it. You know, I, Matt didn't share in, I, and to me, this stuff should all be named and shamed, right? Because it's much easier to bring transparency into a market when people feel confident enough to say what what actually happened. Mm. I suspect there's a lot of what I consider tourist money that's come into the industry, which is when times are really hot, it's it looks like a momentum bet. When there's momentum, money chases after the. You know, it looks it looks really easy to make money in this thing. So everyone jumps on the bandwagon, right? Because yeah. everything is going up and to the right. It doesn't matter if you're phenomenally good at investing or just mediocre investing. If everything's going up and to the right, you're still making money. So a lot of the money comes in. And by the way, in time that, that all that money. You know, when times go bad, it's the first money that's out the door mm. because it can't understand whether there's something interesting there or not. It's just there to play the hot hand and the hot hand doesn't look so hot because the market's changed. So corporate money is like this. Family office money is like this. Right. So I just wonder how much of this stuff that we hear that that's negative is coming from the actual venture. Like what I would consider the actual venture community versus like these kind it's of awesome. this like. The, the tor- no, versus this like tourist capital, right? That mm. pretends to be a venture firm, but isn't really a venture firm, right? They're, the, the high duration, high quality people who are going to be in venture, whatever is in the economy, right? The, people like me, like this is our industry. This is my trade, right? Yeah. 
if something else gets hot tomorrow, I'm not going to switch over to doing this something else that's hot. I'm still going to be doing venture uh, yeah. for, for a while, right? The economy is good. I do venture. Economy is bad. I do venture. It's just what I do. And you can build yeah. value in either of those things. Like this is my industry. There's a lot of venture firms that come in when the market's really hot because this is something they get interested in. The market gets cold. You know, they don't want to do venture anymore. They want to go do real estate. Yeah. So I want... So I wonder how much of the pull term sheets are coming from them versus from the actual venture business. And then I wonder how much of the venture stuff is driven by the fact that all of a sudden capital has become a lot more precious. And so people are, people are for high, less high priority investments. I wonder if they're making them now from our portfolio, we have two companies right now that, that are in the middle of closing documents. Uh, they both started before the crisis and they, the crisis was when most of the negotiation stuff was happening. Both of those are being completed. Neither of them has changed their price. In one case, the round size got bigger because we had a conversation around the table and said, look, in order for this company to have a fighting chance to get past all of this stuff, maybe it makes sense to grow the round by another 25%. There's enough interest around the table to do that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the valuation's not going to change. It's going to be a little bit more diluted, but it's in everybody's best interest, including the founder who, who takes the dilution, unfortunately, mm -hmm. to have the capital because you want to be well positioned through the, through the crisis uh, and then post-crisis so that you yeah. can actually grow. So, so those are those are getting done. That, that's in our portfolio, mm. and then we have somewhere between three to four companies that are considering doing rounds and having conversations with folks. And most of the conversations, these are these are rounds that don't need to happen. Rounds that are getting they're they're considering doing the round. There's a lot of interest on, mm. on you know people are coming and knocking on their doors. Now we'll see if that interest turns into reality in term term sheets, and then we will be worried like everybody else if those term sheets are going to be stable. But mm. it certainly seems like there's business being done. But then I, I read the same stuff that everyone else does, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's hard it's hard to be as chummy in this kind of world uh, mm. right now because you can't uh, you can't meet people socially, right? So WhatsApp and Zooms. Are, it's not as it's not as easy to be as porous with information as when you're informally meeting right over coffee or over a drink etc so you know i see people saying they're pulling back i've seen surveys that have said that the venture industry thinks you know there's going to be a price contraction between 15 to 50 percent someone you know valuation should come down by the way all that stuff makes sense right because mm. In a bull market, what happens to valuations? Valuations go up, right? Because everything else is trading up. In a bear yeah. market, valuations come down. So guess what? Venture venture valuations are also going to come down. You can't really have valuations that are high in bull markets and valuations that are high in bear markets. Yeah. That, that kind of, and you can try for a long time as a founder. <laughs> and kudos to you for doing it. But yeah. eventually, reality kind of sits in. So you know, so we're, we should all be prepared for that. That that mm. just makes sense given what's happening to the public markets. And there's usually a lag of about three to six months between the publics and the privates. So what happens in the public market doesn't get reflected immediately into the private markets because financings don't happen as as often as you know as a, as a daily stock price would would move. Um, so I do think valuations are probably going to come down. I do think capital is going to become more precious. So people are going to become a lot more selective and because there won't be this opportunity to go raise the next fund as easily. So they'll have to be selective with the money that they currently have. Um, and is then a similar, is this a similar trend to what happened in 2008 or, or, or better yet the, the dot-com bubble. Okay. And I think the challenge in Europe is a lot of the venture community didn't exist in the dot com. I mean, the community didn't exist yeah. in dot com bubble, but even the people who are in the industry never lived through that. Mm. So the dot com bubble was a much more 
it was a much harder shock on our industry than the financial crisis was. Mm-hmm. Financial crisis almost had a silver lining. This one feels much more of a formative shock because you see you see both demand and supply shocks yeah. in the market. Yeah. And because you see both, I, I think we're going to end up with like kind of an economic contraction. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to get hard for a lot of people, including a lot of the startups that sell to the people who buy the services, whether they be corporates or consumers. So then I think the venture industry doesn't always understand, you know, if it doesn't have the depth of experience or the longevity of how to navigate these kinds of things. But, but I do think, you know, and I, I do think a lot of that really, a lot of that tourist money, is gonna leave and then unfortunately in europe there's not as many high quality durable venture people are going to be doing a lot of people have set up in the last five years and did they set up because this is really what they want to do or did they set up because they thought they can make a quick buck and you know if if i'm right and a lot of the quick buck money leaves the market's going to contract which means the available capital is going to shrink which means it's going to be a lot harder for founders to raise money mm-hmm. the other thing that's going to be hard i'm really convinced of this is all those us firms that were coming into europe and like 70% of the series b's in in europe were being done by us firms in one form or another mm-hmm. and that either tells you that the market the the market the us firms are super 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 active in europe and doing 70% or very little stuff was happening in Europe at the series B and of the little stuff that was happening, it disproportionately went to the U S guys because it was really hard to raise a series B. And I think it was really hard to raise a series B in Europe. It's easier than it was before, but it was still really hard compared to where, where it is in the U S and if 70% that, that that market doesn't come into the market and it's going to be physically really hard for a U.S. firm to do a European deal without at least spending a little bit of time with the person in person, like face to face, because mm. they're really strangers. You can't socially reference them. You can't vet them. They're not, you don't know who they are. They're far mm. away. You really do have to come and commute. And if you can't commute for three months, six months, and you know, the, this, this crisis could go for three months easily, right? Mm. And may go up to six months. It would be hard for those deals, I think, to get done. So I do think, and people know this. So then they have to be prepared to carry their own companies which means that to, to keep the capital that they have for the companies that are already in the portfolio, which just dries up new business. So, so that's, that's all the dynamic that's in play, mm. but uh, from, we've been surprised, like we're active, like we're doing new deals. Like, cause we raised a new fund a year ago. We're in the early yeah. part of our cycle. We're not in the late part of our cycle. That whole thought process about the next fund is still three years away for us or two and a half years away from us. So we're not so worried about it. And then, you know, we would argue that we're one of the longer, we're newer as a firm, but we've been around the block long enough. So like, we're not so scared about this mm. kind of stuff, but I don't know if that's true of a lot of other people yeah. in the industry. And I think that's all what's happening. And then, you know, you hear stuff like my partner heard that, you know, so-and-so firm thinks all the valuations are going to be down 50% and you'd be crazy not to do a deal, you know, less than, you know, and if, if someone tells you and you really do believe that, you know, this company, like companies in general should not get transacted unless they're being done at 50% off because all the smart people in the world are doing that, then you kind of look like the foolish person you know, writing, you know, doing it at a hundred percent of the value. Yeah. And so again, if you don't care about what other people think about you and you're an independent thinker, this doesn't matter. You'll yeah. have to explain this. Cause at some point people ask you questions of like, why did you do those deals? Yeah. Why did you give me a high prices? Yeah. No, no, forget, forget the startups. Like investors in our own funds will ask us this. Yeah. Right? It's like when, so-and-so like, you know, arbitrarily Sequoia index XL decided that they were going to slow down 
and they weren't going to do very much. And if they did stuff, it was going to be down 50%. By the way, I don't think any of those three firms are doing this. I'm just using them mm -hmm. as an example. Now, you know, why did you as a small scrappy firm decide you were going to pay top dollar and keep mm -hmm. being really active? Like, well, what the hell is going on through your mind? And by the way, if that works out, no one asks you questions. So what happens if it doesn't work out? So it all goes back to that risk question, right? If yeah. you're confident in your own decision-making, it doesn't matter what the rest of the market thinks about mm -hmm. you. And by the way, some of the best investors in the world are very contrarian. Yeah. And everyone knows this, but it is mm. incredibly hard in the financial markets to be contrarian because you get really punished if you're contrarian and you're wrong. And you're wrong, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to quickly touch on um, what you're advising your startups in these tumultuous times. I mean, um, could you highlight the variation of advice you've given to uh, a lot of your um, founders? Yeah, so the biggest piece of advice is you, you need cash. Like yeah. that's the overwhelming advice. And you need as much cash as possible to probably get you to 2020 at a minimum and to get you as much of the way through 2021 as possible. Yeah. Because we don't know when the world changes back and when the market restores. And, and even when the market restores, we don't know how active everyone's going to be. So you need as much firepower on your side as possible to, to survive. And to, to ex you, don't, you, wanna, you, do, you do not want to be dependent on other people's money uh, because you don't know if the other people's money is going to come in, if it's going to come in at lower prices. You just don't, you, we don't know, right? Yeah. So, so the general advice to everybody is cut costs right and some of this happens for free right there's no travel and entertainment right there's just no one's traveling so yeah. so some of this is a freebie make sure you know that we're really lucky we have very few companies in the portfolio who have not raised recently mm. so that they're in a situation where they're going to run out of cash in like three months or six months those are the ones which i think are the most problematic because they're the ones that don't have the cash everyone else like xyz raised four million pounds you know, a few months ago, you know, 4 million pounds over the last time until the end of 2021, we want them to stretch as much as possible. We want things to be really cautious about spend, but you know, to be quite honest, they have enough money in the bank. Yeah. So, and they're, they're already kind of lean that it doesn't matter to them. It's mm -hmm. the ones that run out of capital earlier on or before the cycle kind of corrects itself. And I think you really do need as much as possible of 2020 and, and as, as much as possible of 2021 mm -hmm. to kind of weather the storm because it's not like this economy immediately rebounds in like three months you know people are really cash strapped out there right and if businesses aren't functioning you know it's just gonna be really hard it's gonna take a while for the cycle to, to it's not gonna be a simple v i don't think um so and, and if it is that's a good that's a good thing to have if you have extra cash on your balance sheet today and the market rebounds you know happy days the yeah. worst thing is Companies go out of business when they run out of cash. They don't want to run out of cash. So that, that's been our overwhelming advice is, is, you know, try and try and preserve cash as much as possible. You know, some of our companies are doing kind of top up rounds where rounds are happening. We want them to be slightly bigger and we want the cost base to be slightly lower so that mm. you get an amplification effect on both sides. Mm. Um, and then, you know, some of our companies are still selling. It's amazing. Uh, I mean, they're they're up. Like one of them is up. Like they had their 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 e-commerce marketplace or a marketplace for homewares, and you know their their Black Friday is really big for them. Last mm. like last week was a bigger day than Black Friday. You know, wow. Because as people are staying at home, they're buying homewares. So so then my question is, if you're contribution margin positive, if you're making money in a software mm. business, inherent makes money. But if you're like a, a marketplace type business, you may, may not always make money on the sale. So fully loaded. If if you're making money you're getting the spend to acquire a customer back in 30 days, mm. then you should think of that cash as 
and and by the way, Facebook advertising, Instagram advertising, you know, all of this stuff has has plummeted because very few people are spending into the cycle. But if you're able to make the money work and you're able to recoup the money really fast, then, you know, imagine you have a million pounds and you're spending 100K. If you get, if you spend 100K, you get the 100K back in 30 days, you can spend the 100K again, right? And you have the remaining 900K still there. And, you know, some of that can go back, you know, you're spending, maybe it takes 30 days. So you're spending the 100K the first month, you're using the second 100K the second month, but you're getting the first 100K back the second month. So then you can spend it on the third month. And so mm. you can chain it, right? Yeah. You should, you should be actually aggressive, right? This is an opportunity for you to actually make a ton of money, mm. right? And you get the money and, and you recoup the money as fast as possible. And so you can show growth. And the best thing to do is to build your customer base for that kind of business. For businesses mm. where you can't do the sales type stuff, you know, they're just challenged. There's not going to be a lot of business for them. This is a good time to hunker down and do all the product stuff that's in your roadmap because product stuff and engineering stuff can be done virtually and remotely and effectively mm. if you have the right kinds of people. So hunker down, stretch out cash, go do all the product work that you need to do. So you're well poised afterwards to have like the best in class type product. So that, yeah. that's the stuff that kind of depends. Yeah. But the overwhelming is preserve cash. Make sure yeah. you have lots of runway. Mm. Do you have a perspective on how companies should lay off their employees? I mean, look, I, I mean, there are great companies that are just going to have to let um, employees go. I mean, the, the, there's yeah. an issue and on I think, supply and demand now. So, and, 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 and you know, this is why I think there's this economic shock because it's not just you know, it's not just our yeah. companies. It's all, lots of companies are doing this. And yeah. So, what, how do you recover from that, right? If you have a bunch unemployment's like in the U.S. is now at fifteen percent, up from like three percent. I mean, it's from it's risen dramatically. Whoa. Okay. Um, and you know, the U.S. is not like a big benefits culture. Like the mm. amount of people getting unemployment benefits is skyrocketed. Mm. Um, so. You know, this is this is hard to recover from um, because of that. But, you know, from our companies, unfortunately, you got to be a little bit brutal in, in terms of making these decisions. You can't stretch them out. Right. Because, you know, if you're over if you're if you're oversized mm. and you need to lengthen cash and you need to you have to think about this as surviving. This mm. is not about doing necessarily good. This is about doing what it takes to survive. You know, it, it's hard. It's been the, the hardest parts, by the way, are like you've built up an A plus team. It's taken you like six months or nine months to recruit the kinds yeah. of people that you need. And you now know that you really don't need all of those people because of the, the new, the new economy, the new world, mm. but you don't want to let them go because it's going to take you another six or nine months to go find them again. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it was a pain. What do you do in that scenario? You know what? You've got to lengthen cash. Mm. Uh, that's because if you don't do that, you don't survive. If you don't survive, this all becomes academic. You've got mm-hmm. it. You've got it. And then how you do this, you do it in the most gracious way possible. Everyone's hurting right now, right? That's that we leave up to our companies, right? We've introduced mm-hmm. companies to each other to, so they can share best practices on how to do this. This is, this is not easy stuff, mm-hmm. but conceptually at the board level, unfortunately, I think these are the decisions that you have to make. Now, hopefully, you know, this is all precautionary and it's mm. not, you know, this isn't stuff that you have to worry about in six months because the market comes back. But it's the question is, we don't know that with certainty, right? There's a decent amount of probability that it may not come back. And in case if you don't make the hard decisions today, it's, it's a hundred times harder to make the hard decisions the next time around and your hands are going to be a lot more tied. And then even making those decisions then probably won't save the business as much. Right. So, mm. cause you don't have the runway to be able to do the things that you need to do. It, it sucks. 
Um, but it's the decisions I think you have to make. And I think, you know, weirdly enough, founders who are serial entrepreneurs who've kind of lived through stuff like that, they're much more brutal about this kind of stuff. It's the first time founders that, you know, that, that it's tough. And then we spend a lot of time talking to them because you know what, it, it's really hard to lay off people. It's emotionally trying. You know, mm. it doesn't feel particularly good. You don't usually want to do it. You yeah. know, and then where's this, who's the support layer for the person who's actually doing all those hard decisions, right? Mm. That, that usually ends up being us in some form or another. So then mm. we're on the, on the phone largely to be support once you've made this kind of hard call. Could you mainly, uh, could you highlight newly created sectors that will emerge really good after this? I mean, I mean, I'm thinking cloud kitchens is likely to do really well. Um, yeah, we have, we have a, we have a business and we have a, we did an investment in that a few months ago. Like, last Oh, you did. Year. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the hard part is you have to usually invest before mm. the market shifts <laughs> uh, because, because this is where the lending behavior comes, right? And yeah. now all of a sudden the light bulb goes off. Yeah. By the time you set up, you're, you're in production, you've got the brand, like in a cloud, you're getting the brands, you're getting, you know, it's going to take you six months, nine months, a year. To, to be able to act on the idea that you have today. Yeah. If you had the idea a year ago, then right now you're, you're golden, right? Like his, yeah. his stuff is really lining up in your favor much faster yeah. than you thought. So you have to be, you have to be ahead of the puck adventure, which is hard, yeah. which is why I cannot answer these kinds of questions, which is I don't know, like genuinely don't know. Like I do, I do not invest on the basis that I'm smarter than the people that I'm investing mm. in. I really honestly believe that the people who come and talk to us are much brighter than we are, much more capable of seeing the forest for the trees than we can. They educate us, not the other way around when mm. it comes to these kind of new markets. But at a very high level, it's very clear that this like remote working thing is not going to go away. Yeah. So all the infrastructure pieces that go everything from like the Zooms of the world down to like the AWSs of the world that, you know, that like that stuff is going to be fine and, mm. and probably going to be growing. I, I think once you're once you're sitting in a home office for three months and you're productive, you and your manager and your executives are going to be asking the question is, do I do I really need to have as much office space as possible, you know, or can someone be working from home? Because you have the skepticism that working from home means working in your pajamas, doing nothing, watching TV, right? Uh, mm. But in this kind of world, everyone's, everyone has to do that. And we're yeah. all being reasonably productive. In fact, I think, and I've, I keep talking, about, I think we all work a hell of a lot harder because we're on this thing it's really hard to take a pause and a break to go mm -hmm. do all the household type stuff. And by the time six o'clock rolls around, I don't know about you, but it feels exhausting to me to yeah. be in like an always on type scenario. Whereas like in the office, like you go for a little coffee break, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You have all this like downtime, uh, which you don't have here. You're like always, you're, it just feels like you're always on. And then you've got to do all the other stuff. And if you have kids with you, you know, uh, it's like a hundred times harder because yeah. you're trying to keep the kids entertained while doing the work. So I think our productivity is actually, pretty good right now and then there's the time to is, exercise as well there's time that you don't have to have you found time i yeah, have yeah. found time i'm really uh, i mean i'm uh, trying uh, now as soon as i wake up my trainers go on and i just head out uh, out of the door and then um i feel a hell of a lot more productive I, i've got like 10 minutes to meditate and all of a sudden i'm i'm at my desk like at so around I'm, about seven o'clock 
so I, I'm used to going to like the gym in the morning or the gym in the evening, like to my, yeah. to my I go to a Pilates class, like I can oh, okay. go to Pilates classes right now. So like I, you know, <laughs> and I haven't found like a substitute. So like I, I'm struggling on the fitness side. The health has come down in the last two weeks for, but I'm eating much better. We're all yeah. eating at home and it's all good, high quality mm. cooked food. But, and then the other thing is I think shipping and logistics. So mm. if you look at what shipping and logistics are doing right now, it's incredible, right? We're all, and this is, and I, I don't think, as, as much as I would like to believe everyone comes back and it's going to be a big rebound, I think restaurants, et cetera, deserve to be rebounded. Like I, I want to see those businesses actually succeed. I think a lot of stuff is going to take place virtually. I don't know if the offline businesses, the offline retail businesses, which are already on the secular decline, are going to recover nearly as much when you can do online type stuff. And I think in order to do online type stuff, there's just a layer of shipping and logistics complexity that has to happen. By the way, there's a ton of jobs in this logistics industry right now mm -hmm. because it's understaffed relative to the new demand that's kind of get, gotten yeah. formed. And, and I do think there's going to be a bunch of software stuff. I was talking to a venture firm that only specializes in shipping and logistics businesses. The mm -hmm. founders had sold the business for a couple of billion, um, you know, and, and they know the space super well and all their businesses are, 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 are thriving and are, are, are interesting. And I do think there's going to be a layer of infrastructure again, part of its software that mm -hmm. goes in to make that business do, do much better. So, but, but, you know, be honest and, and, I, and you know, we're spending, a, it's weird, like in the bio world, the idea of building diagnostics tests is if you talk to a biotech or a health type investor, they'll tell you that's a, that's a crappy business model. No one ever makes money on the diagnostics. You make money on the therapeutics, but not on the diagnostics. Yeah. I guess diagnostics is really freaking important right now, right? <laughs> if we had tests that could like yeah. work in close to real time right now, mm. the society would function a lot better. So I, I think a lot of these like really hard, like, you know, tried and tested beliefs that people have may now be a little bit shaken because the world has changed a little bit and some other stuff has become a little bit more valuable, right? Uh, um, as a result. So, so, you know, we're all I can say is we're on the lookout we're very open-minded because we can't figure this stuff out. So we really do try and sit and listen and, and you know, we're trying and sitting as best as we can sit and listen in this virtual world to figure out where things are, things are going to be. And, and again, we have to invest in anticipation of the growth, not yeah. when the growth is happening. Yeah. I mean, I think um, health tech and uh, biotech are going to just be uh, industries that are ripe. I think there'll be better regulatory frameworks between yeah. health tech startups and, um, a little bit more clarity in terms of introducing technologies into the NHS now, because I mean, the startups are really helping out right now. So um, and there was already kind yeah. of a meta trend of well, like the, the weird people in the industry, the Tim Ferriss's of the world, right. Uh, who wanted to like measure everything themselves and not go to a doctor and then kind of interpret the data and the athletes mm -hmm. kind of do this as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if there was a test, like an at home test for this stuff, like, I bet you a ton of people would have bought it just to, just to see, right. Just mm -hmm. if, if only, and without the NHS, like, so I think a lot of that shift from like health from the service providers to the consumer, it's a secular shift. It was happening slower. It was happening mm -hmm. in these weird pockets, but, but that that's going to accelerate. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. these are, people forget like interesting businesses are built in bad times and yeah. these things are not for us like absolute growth is what drives it so like yeah the valuations are down public markets are down but you know what if you have the hot new idea and you go from zero to something really big it all works itself out mm -hmm. right and there's a ton of stuff that i think is going to get built
yeah i can imagine um the the, the final question before i want to before we go into the quick fire round um yeah. it's a bit of a random question and i'm going to assume you're going to hate this question but uh, we'll go we'll go with it anyway like what do you think you'll be investing in uh, in 20 years time i've got some weird and one funky um uh, answers on this one of the answers i got was um owning a part of the individual Oh, which, yeah. kind of, which kind of sounds like slavery, but then um, well, that's like lamb. That's also like lambda school. <laughs> yeah. You get a cut of the earnings, right? You help train someone. Yeah, yeah it, it does. It, I, you know, there, there, by the way, there has been. I, I joke. I mean, there's been. You know, we we used to in the old days, right? Have have indentured servants, et cetera, like people who did a lot of the chores for us. But if you think about a lot of this gig economy type stuff, mm. you know, that's kind of like it's kind of that kind of the benefits of that stuff mm. without, without all the baggage of that stuff. Right. I mean, mm. people do want to be taken care of and are happy to pay for it yeah. uh, on an on demand basis. And, and it's, it's different. You know, it's not, you know, you're not doing anything as exploitive, but you know, it is. So the humanity kind of stays the same, right. In new world order versus old world order in some mm. respects in, in 20 years, honestly, I, I, I don't want to be investing. Uh, I, I don't. I, I want to have done well enough in the next ten years that I don't need to do any of this stuff yeah. in the next twenty years, and I'll just be a consumer of this stuff and a reader of what's actually going on. And to be fair, in the venture industry, you're you start you start learning the business in your twenties. You start becoming productive in your thirties. You're really productive in your forties, and by the time you're fifties, you're so far out of date with all the old models, like those are the ones that are etched in your head. Mm. And when the new thing comes along, you're like, yeah, that's never going to work. Right. So I know that if someone showed me Pinterest or Snapchat or TikTok, I'd be like, what the hell is this? House like, part, it, would be, yeah. it would just, it would be really, I mean, you, you show me the numbers and the trajectory and the repeat usage, et cetera. I can, I can figure it out from there. But if someone mm. just showed it to me as a concept, I'd be like, yeah, that's really silly. And, and that tells you how out of date I am yeah. because a, a 25 year old me or a 30 year old me would not say this is that sadly doesn't have all that much career longevity, which is why it's so important to knock it out of the park. Uh, Cause you get a, you get a very finite window of being productive. And then unfortunately your patterns and norms are tied to last year's models, not this year's models. Mm. And, as much as you want to overcome that bias, it's really hard to overcome the bias. There's a joke in our industry that says like, if you have teenage daughters, you get a new, you get a new lease on life because you can look at all the cool stuff that they're doing. And that filters back into what, how you see the world yeah. and you can be productive again. And it's yeah. really pronounced, I think in consumers, it kind of loosely makes sense, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, in 20 years, I, I don't, I don't want to be doing this job. So this. Mm, I can imagine um, a quick fire round. Yeah. Um, most valuable purchase under 50 pounds, pounds, not dollars. Under. I guess it's almost <laughs> similar now. <laughs> uh, we have, we have, it's actually, we have a beautiful ceramic nonstick pan that we use every morning <laughs> to make our eggs. That is, that, that, that is very, that is very like contemporary right now, given the crisis. Yeah. And the, I think the, it's like, I think it's like 30 pounds. That's all right. <laughs> um, the, the other one, um, the other question I had was, um, what have you learned about yourself uh, from being on all of these boards? I mean, you've been a board member and I think it's fair to say you're a seasoned uh, venture capitalist now. So uh, what have you learned about yourself, um, uh, you know, throughout your journey and, and being on boards? 
the, the biggest shift, and, and you see it with all young people who transition to be a little bit older, wiser, uh -huh. is you, you just learn that it, it pays a lot to shut up. <laughs> uh, you, 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 in the, in, in the early part of this business, you really want to prove to people that you're smart, you're capable, you've read the board pack, you have tons of insight, you want to, you want to contribute and you realize it's actually perfectly fine to be passive and to only pipe up a handful of times, uh, mm. when really needed, because then your voice carries a lot more gravity and you're, and the other, the other big thing is you're largely there as a support function not to be the smartest person in the room like mm. this is, that's that, that's not this business this business is largely uh, i'm a helpful person from the sidelines i want to see the people who are actually running the business kind of almost in many ways figure it out for themselves and if i can help them figure it out a little bit faster i will try and help them but i don't need to figure it out uh, and a big change and you, you see with all young people in this kind of business who transition to become a little bit more experienced and i i, I saw it in myself i was much mm. more yeah you, you're just you have much more of a chip on your shoulder much more something to prove in those early days it's it's not effective on the board to, mm. to be that yeah and um is what's is there a book that you would give to a fellow startup founder or have you uh, gifted books to your portfolio companies? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I have a startup book pack. Uh, so I, not just, not just a okay. book, but we, we give a pack. So we, we, uh, we, we give, I'm looking it up right now. So I can, I can, I can tell you what some of the names yeah. are. So, uh, so we do the zero to one because I think it's important to understand how the venture industry works. That's a Peter Thiel book on venture. Yeah. Um, there's a phenomenally good book on M&A uh, called The Magic Box Paradigm. And okay. it's basically, if you're, if you're not one of these big companies that's getting sold for multi-billion dollars, you're a small company that fits into someone else's kind of roadmap in many ways and why, you know, that's why they would be buying you. Mm. How, do you how do you make that work? And it's this like banker who wrote this book and you know, it, it's, it's really insightful on how to, how, to, how to think about doing an M&A process, not the tactics of it, just the strategy of it mm. um, called Magic Box uh, Paradigm. Uh, venture deals, which is the legal book that Brad Feld wrote, like on venture term sheets and like what's what in the term sheet is, is useful. People it's probably a little bit too late if we're giving it to founders after the investment, but it's good to prepare <laughs> them for the, for the next rounds. Um, um, and then uh, there's a great book called Lost and Founder, uh, which is written by uh, the founder of SEO Moz. It's his kind of story. There's another book called The San Francisco Fallacy. Uh, that's a book by Jonathan Siegel, who's the mm. founder of a few different businesses, who's a venture partner uh, at Excel. Uh, and then we really like the Al Ramadan book, uh, which is uh, uh, Play Bigger, which is all about how to build new categories yeah. and how to establish yourself as the winner in the new category. And, and then the last one is, everyone's read this probably, is Blitzscaling. Um, uh, which is the Reed Hoffman book mm. on, on how to scale really fast. Uh, and then maybe one more that's on this list. It's actually really good. Uh, I thought it was a really good book. Never split the difference. It's a negotiating book um, yeah. written by an FBI uh, interrogator uh, or an FBI, sorry, not interrogator, a uh, hostage, hostage yeah. negotiator. Mm. I, I thought it's, it's interesting. It's a little cheesy, but it, but it's, it's, it's actually pretty good. And there's some tips in there that are yeah. really useful. And um, uh, um, what would you say has been the most valuable advice you've received? Most valuable advice. Uh, so, so, uh, so this a friend of mine sold his company in 1998 to Amazon. It was like yeah. one of the original search companies. And then he worked for Jeff for a long time, and then stepped down from Amazon. I mean, he made a lot of money, so he stepped down from Amazon. 
um, and then did his own kind of thing. And then one of the things he did was he sold a lot of his Amazon stock. Um, wow. And he told me today, if he'd held on to that stock, that stock would be worth about $2 billion. And he said the, the regret that he has was he sold that stock. He didn't need cash. He's, he's, he's wealthy. He's a very successful yeah. entrepreneur. He says, I knew where Jeff was going. I worked with him. You know, I knew where he was going. I had high conviction in, in, in this person. I also knew the thesis behind what Jeff was trying to do, which is build this like platform, not just for books, but for something much, much broader, was 100% spot on. The trend was kind of behind him. When you mm. see those kinds of trends, you stay with them. Don't don't give up on them halfway through. So and he was telling me this because I was like, yeah, you know, we've done this a really good job in Europe. Our thesis kind of proved out. I was like, maybe we should consider moving back home to California or to New York and kind of, you know, we've made money like we're, we're, we're good. Mm-hmm. And he's like, why would you do that? And he's like, Europe is in the early innings. You, you did a very good job in the first and second inning. But this is do you think this is going to end anytime soon? I was like, no, it's only going to get better. He was like. You stay with the trend, right? You bet your career on the trend. And when you see the trend, you don't you don't hop off the trend early on or prematurely. You you need the you need the long you need the long the long perspective, mm-hmm. um, you know. And I thought that that that's pretty poignant advice. Uh, and I think it's true for a lot of our companies that are you know, very much still in the early innings of what the mm-hmm. mission that they're trying to do. You know, don't 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 jump off the mission because it's very rare that these pieces fall into place in a way where you can actually do an incredibly good job. So mm. when you're in one of those situations, don't take yourself out of it. Yeah. And um, f- final question. I mean, what gives you the most gratitude and fulfillment for what you're doing right now and what you have been doing, uh, you know, uh, uh, recently? Cause I mean, you've been a venture capitalist for a long time. Um, I mean, what gives you the most fulfillment and gratitude? We, 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 I would love to say we love seeing these companies grow and become big, et cetera. And that, that, mm. that's rewarding and, and stuff. But I, I just, we really like putting new businesses into business, right? There's a lot yeah. that they can do once we write the check. That first, we get, I get more gratitude from that first year. It's great to have the deliveries and the dark traces and the Babylons, mm. right? As logos. And yeah. you can tell a good story about how you, and we're still involved in you know, the companies, et cetera. Mm. But, but we get a lot more. I get a lot more gratitude from writing that first check and then seeing the seismic change that happens from like, you know, that day zero to that, you know, that, that end of the year for yeah. first year. It, it's, it's fulfilling. It's, it's nice to see people kind of on the beginning of a trajectory and, mm. and you helped, you helped them at the start of the trajectory. Yeah. Amazing. I it's guess why, this, it's why yeah. I like early. I don't, I don't really like yeah. investing. Or late stage <laughs> investing. Is, is most of your fund allocated to say seed and series A investments? See, yeah. Seed. And I do pre-seed more than even my partner does. Uh, oh, so really? like I'm, I'm like early days. Yeah. I wow. guess I, I never thought about it this way, but I think I, I get more joy out of that. Yeah. I mean, have you always I done pre so the, yeah. the big brand name type stuff. Have you always done pre-seed? Uh, yeah, we did. No, at Axel, we did mostly A's and B's. Mm. And then when we set up our firm, because it was so small, we did mostly seed and A. Mm. And over time, I've been gravitating even more so to pre-seed than to, than to, than to A's. I'm probably trained to be more of an A investor, and I probably mm. end up doing a, a surprisingly high percentage of pre-seeds. Mm. Amazing. Um, I guess that marks the end of all of my questions now. The sun's come out. Gosh. Um, uh, I mean, is there anything else you want to kind of highlight or kind of share with the audience? Um, 
where to find yeah. you, etc. Uh, yeah, yeah. So websites hoxton.vc, h-o-x-t-o-n.vc, and mm. the email is really easy. It's just hk at hoxton.vc. Uh, that's the shorthand uh, to, yeah. to for for me. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much for being on our show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye.